WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Welcome to another edition of Out There. My name is Joe McFall. And my name is Raymond Wiley. Thanks for tuning in. How you feeling week? today, Raymond? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm looking forward to going home for Christmas, spending some time with the family and all that. Yeah, it's the holidays and we have an extra special edition, a holiday episode of Out There. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's more, um, you know, what's more in the holiday Christmas tradition than CIA mind control? N- nothing that I can think of. <laughs> nothing at all. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, as I just alluded to, we're going to be doing our show today about um, the U.S. government's attempts at uh, at, a, at a mind control program. Yeah, it started in the late '40s after the Second World War, and who knows? Yeah, they may they may even still be going on to this day. But acid truth serums and the Manchurian Candidate, hypnosis, radiation, electroshocks, uh, multiple personality, presidential assassins, induced psychosis. Oh my God! This it's is, all on the list for today. This is going to be fun. But um, first, yes, we have announcements to make. Right, as always. So, for, um, if you have any suggestions for the show, or if you like our show, or just want to send us an email. Out there radio at gmail.com. Right. And um, we're going to be starting a mailing list in the upcoming weeks. And we'd like for you to um, to let us know if you want to be a part of that. So send us an email at outthereradio at gmail.com. If you want to get on our mailing list, we'll be creating a listserv in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Certainly, certainly before we air our first show of the new year. We also want to do... Uh, like sort of a uh, listener survey. So if you if you have any any suggestions or critiques or compliments about the show, we really want your feedback. So send us an email. It's out there radio at gmail.com. Absolutely. If I say um too much <laughs> or something, just Ray- let us know. Raymond always listens to the to the replays of our show to the podcast and keeps keeps account of how many times he says um. I do not. I want. I mean, I admit that I want to eliminate it from my. You just said you just said um at the end of the word from. Does that count? <laughs> no, I said om at the end from. of the word. You don't pronounce from as from. Oh, whatever. All right. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, I mean, even if it's little stuff like that, I mean, it, it helps to improve the overall quality of the show. And you know, we we want the next year to to kind of take us in newer directions without there or whatever it's going to be called and i guess that's yes. kind of the next point speaking that, of that i wanted to get to we're going to change the name of the show in the new year and we would like um i guess this is the main point of feedback we're looking for this week send us an email and let us if you have an idea for a name of a show of this kind and um, we will certainly credit you with yeah. With creating the name and maybe even send you a t-shirt when we get our t-shirt absolutely ready. yeah um, in fact if you think of a if you think of a name that we end up using and, and you're the only person who thought of it <laughs> <laughs> right. because if we get like 20 emails you know of all the same name we can't send out 20 t-shirts but if you're the only person who thought of a name that we end up using we we're going to try to get some t-shirts together for for the new year um we'll send you a t-shirt with that name on it Absolutely. I mean, we have to have the name before right. we can actually print exactly. the shirts. But yeah, and um, you know, we're going to be doing some kind of out there season one compilation at the end of the spring, and you'll certainly be getting one of those too. So. In fact, maybe we can even send them. I mean, of course, if they're podcast listeners, they already have all the MP3s. But I was going to say, oh, send them a CD or something. But anyway. exactly, exactly. Yeah, whatever, whatever. Well, you know, they'd still like it. I think. Yeah, yeah. But that's beside the point. The point is. CIA mind control. CIA mind control. <laughs> I think the CIA is making us get off topic, Raymond. Oh dang! They're uh, 
their techniques have already worked. <laughs> yeah. What's I think the chip in my brain is starting to fire. What's this book over here? Oh, look, it's Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> Catcher in the Rye. Fancy that. Are you planning to assassinate someone? Uh, perhaps you, Mr. McFall. <laughs> uh, I knew I was in some on some list somewhere. I didn't know I was <laughs> Right. So, um... Yeah, I mean, we should, I guess, start off by giving you a little bit of history and background. Uh, and, you know, I, I want to say before we go any farther that of all the conspiracy theories we've talked about in the past, you know, many episodes, this is the one that is certainly proven to be true. Yeah. Right? We're going to talk about MK Ultra today, and MK Ultra existed. It was a program yeah. that this, you know, is well documented. Mm-hmm. The Freedom of Information Act has made all sorts of materials available about this program, and there have even been court cases surrounding um, the use of non-consenting test subjects and things like that, which branched off from this. Yeah, you can go online and look at uh, declassified CIA documents from the period and see exactly, well, not exactly what they're doing because a lot of the stuff was destroyed. Right. But, but the MK Ultra program, which MK, a lot of people think, stands for mind control with a K. Um, when, did, when did control start with a K? Whenever America started Apparently. being spelled with a K, I guess. I've had I've talked to people that said it, that thought it was the newest uh, Mortal Kombat video game. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's not that at all. Finish him. Somehow that is relevant. <laughs> right, because you're kind of standing there in a daze. Right? Yeah, you're reading Catch from the Rye. You've been uh, hypnotically controlled. You have some in, some CIA-induced psychosis. All of a sudden, you're burnt to a crisp by a yellow ninja. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. All of a sudden, you kill Kennedy. Uh, oh, my God. One of the Kennedys. Hey, hey, don't blow the lid on the end of the show. Okay, okay. okay sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so, anyway, you might ask yourself... What is MK Ultra all about? When we say mind control, what do we mean? What you know, when the CIA or whatever government agencies were were you know initially researching this, what you know, what was their aim? And I think I think I got a quote here that kind of sums this up pretty well. This is um, Richard Helms talking to Alan Dulles. Who who are Richard Helms and Alan Dulles um, for our listeners? Richard Helms, I believe at the time, this is the early 50s, was the head of the CIA, the director mm-hmm. of the CIA. And then Alan Dulles, I believe at that time, worked under him and then later became the head of the CIA. Right, because... Kennedy in, eventually fired him. Right. So Alan Dulles authorized MKUltra in 1953. Yes. But what's this Helms quote? Okay, this is actually before MKUltra got started. This yeah. is um, their analyzing the success or failure of projects they had done up until that point, which had, compared to what we're going to talk about today, had been relative, I wouldn't say relatively benign, but they had been certainly smaller in scale. Helms asks Dulles, can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against the fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? That's the aim of MK Ultra and That's all these government mind control operations. They really want to create, for lack of a better term, human robots. This thing is so unnerving, Raymond. Like you and I have been talking about this all afternoon to each other so far, and like now we're you know we have this broadcast going on. But I just want to say that like it, just going through all this stuff, that alone is enough just to scare the crap out of me. Oh, absolutely. The fact that this isn't now. This is fifty years ago. Right. That you know, serious money was being pumped into research. Six percent of the total CIA budget initially was funded the MKUltra program. I mean, if you think about all the oper- other operations that they were doing and how much money they must have been getting, especially in comparison to, you know, the rates of the time. Yeah, you know? I mean, and, and this is the Cold War. Like this, they're, they're part of the motivation for doing all this is because they think that the communists are doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess the story starts off. 1946 or 47 as the Cold War is really starting to to take off. Mm-hmm. And all of these reports are coming out of China and Russia that our communist enemies at the time were using, I guess, really uh, effective truth serums and other drugs to get um, agents and prisoners to... You know, give up all sorts of secrets and stuff like well, that. Well, they thought this. They thought this, yeah. absolutely. And in response, or at least this is, if when you read this, the documents about this that have been released, whoever's writing them talks about this not as a project that they just thought up, oh, we're going to start using mind control. They always justify it by saying, oh, well, our enemies were already using this stuff, so we had to 
yeah. you know, put our put our two cents in. Or we got to know what they're doing to our boys. Exactly, and right? we've got to be able to apparently do it to their boys. Exactly. And when was the movie The Manchurian <laughs> Candidate made? I don't remember. It's a, it's a Sinatra film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, late sixties, early seventies, I think. No, no, it would have been late fifties, I think. Oh wait, wait, wait. Yeah, you're right. It was like. Late 50s, Mid to late 50s. So, strangely enough, like, this movie's being made about about this subject way before, you know, anything ever came out. I mean, most of this stuff didn't become public knowledge until the early to Mm mid-1970s. So, but we're getting off topic here. Well, that's not so off topic because part of the premise of that movie is that it was North Koreans who were brainwashing our boys to uh, be sleeper agents. And shoot the president shoot or the whatever. Shoot the president to be assassin. Which, I mean, if you think about it, it's not too out of the realm of possibility. You know, if you've seen what a like a, a professional hypnotist can do at a, um, you know, they have they have those shows where he'll pull people out of the audience and like immediately hypnotize them mm-hmm. into doing whatever, and then they won't even know. You know, he'll snap his fingers. Or, I mean, we've all seen this. We all know that hypnosis works, right? And we all know that, you know, I mean, we've talked a little bit about cults before on the show. That when you sensory deprivation and sleep deprivation and things like that can have a powerful effect on the mind and how influenceable, yeah. if that's a word, <laughs> you are, you know. Well, one of the things that people always say about hypnosis is that, like, someone under hypnotic suggestion will not do anything that they normally wouldn't do. And, in fact, the MK Ultra program, is part, part of the quote you just read, suggested that they're looking for ways to get around that. Yeah, to break past that boundary. Right, to make someone do something they wouldn't normally do and po- and possibly do something they're not even consciously aware of. Exactly. And I guess the roots of this go back to 1947 with Project Chatter. This actually wasn't a CIA operation. It was a Navy intelligence operation. And this was the initial program. And it, I don't know how much... I don't think it had that much money behind it. And it really was more geared towards identifying what different kinds of drugs might be possibly used as as good truth serums or very effective truth serums. So that was in the 40 in late 40s you said 47. And, I mean this is like basically yeah. right after the war. So the CIA hadn't really discovered well I mean LSD was invented by Albert Hoffman, Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman in 1945 I believe, but it hadn't really hit the United States at that point. So at that time they were probably using stuff like mescaline, amphetamine, methamphetamine, um yeah, and opiates, opiates as well. Um yeah. some of the tests, yeah. And I don't think that testing was as widespread with this original operation chatter as it became later, especially under the CIA's direction. But it kind of it's the beginning, and then after that comes Operation Bluebird, which uh, works more through, which is the first of the CIA operations, mm-hmm. and it's working more towards um, psychiatric analysis of of these sort of mind control techniques. It focuses on inducing amnesia and um, powerful hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Partly Could also you- like finding out. Uh, who, which people are more susceptible to hypnosis? Yes, that that was a big part of it was finding out who to target, not just right. because some people are are not hardly at all susceptible to hypnosis, and you know it, mm-hmm. it takes them being absolutely willing in twenty or thirty or minutes or an hour even of working up to it before you can even bring some people into a trance-like state. Other people, it's almost instant that you yeah. can just drop them right into this state where they're. I mean, almost totally at your will. If mm-hmm. if you can, like I said, break through that barrier where people will do things that they wouldn't normally do under hypnosis. Now, after that came Operation Artichoke, which, um, and it was, the, the quote I used from Helms earlier was from the documents pertaining to Operation Artichoke, and it was really more about um, using drugs, especially drugs, to you know, experiment on people and see kind of what what you can get out of them when they're, you know, sleep-deprived and tripped out. Or, I mean, I remember reading one description of a test that they would do where they would 
have a person hooked up to an IV drip in each arm, mm-hmm. and in one arm it would be barbiturates, and the other arm it would be amphetamines. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. and they drug them up with amphetamines until they could, or not with amphetamines, but with barbiturates until they could hardly move and were hardly awake. And then they'd introduce uh, amphetamines into their system, and the sudden jump in like brainwave activity or whatever, or just in their bodily functions, would cause them to just blather on about whatever oh. like delusional talk and and it was said that they you know they would try to ask them important questions at that very moment to see if it worked i don't know if it worked very well this and you really what, couldn't do that to somebody for too long before they just their body would just quit i think but they would do it for long periods of time oh yeah oh yeah but and this is this is artichoke right project right, artichoke. This is artichoke and at that point, they weren't using LSD in particular. They were using stuff like mescaline. Though. Right. Other I mean, they may have. I, you know, I'd have to look. It, I'd have to look it up. Well, I know that they started using LSD under MK Ultra when uh, Sidney Gottlieb in 1953, after Alan Dulles approved the operation of MK Ultra. Sidney Gottlieb, who is a chemist, um, his his real name or his original name was Joseph Schneider. Um, Sidney Gottlieb was a, chem- a chemist. He was a poison expert. He is the one who sort of came up with the idea of using LSD uh, for the MKUltra program. Right, and I guess we should just move on into describing the MKUltra program, which is kind of the ultimate example of all of these other programs that I've been talking about well, up until this actually, point. Actually, I have a question first about just about artichoke. Were they at that point using stuff like electroshock, convulsive therapy, um, or microwave radiation um, that kind of stuff for artichoke, or did that come along later with, with with ultra? Do we know that? No, I don't think so. I think it was more forced opiate addiction was the main drug uh, of okay. choice, and then I don't see any references to microwave radiation. I don't think that came until the sixties. So that was later. that was what MK Ultra really expanded on the kind of the mind the mind control techniques that they were using in artichoke and bluebird and other pre, and other prior operations. Exactly. So they had already done all this research on hypnosis. Yeah. And on certain drugs, but I don't imagine they had much success, especially with barbiturates or opiates. Right. Um, they, I mean, they would even do experiments on people, like testing opiate withdrawal. Like that was the right. point that they would get. Those. So they would load them up with opiates like morphine or heroin, heroin and then pull them off of it suddenly of it. and see what and see how much easier it would be to get information out of them. And and I mean, who? Okay, and we need to we need to. Um, qualify all this by saying you know there are a lot of people being tested under these programs thousands of army and navy recruits mental patients mental patients prisoners uh, prisoners uh, people who just volunteered for to be test subjects Mm -hmm. and a lot of them are being tested against their wills or Mm -hmm. without even knowing that they're about to be tested or to be test subjects or to have some strange drug induced into their body and all this really hits a high point we guess under MK Ultra, mm-hmm. Joe. Would you like to talk about MK Ultra a little yeah, bit? Yeah, well, MK Ultra, you know, like I said, it was authorized in uh, April of '53 by Alan Dulles, then director of the CIA. Um, and later on that year, in June of 1953, uh, the Sidney Gottlieb, who's the the chemist I was talking about, he was also he was a, a chemist who was an expert in poison, and he was later involved not only in MKUltra, but also in stuff like some of the plots to kill Castro by poison and some of the other stuff, too. This the, this dude is like a maniac. Exploding cigars. Yeah, yeah. Drugs in the dictator's food. He, he apparently, um, one of his ideas was to put LSD all over the television studio that Castro broadcasted from. Um, just cover it with LSD so that, you know, whenever Castro went in, he'd be, he'd start tripping on acid for... And what would this accomplish? That's what I want to know. It's well, like, I you mean, slip Castro some acid. I guess, I guess... I mean, he... what if he has some, like, great epiphany about uh, how to make <laughs> communism work even better? Right, And then, right. like, completely discredits your cause because you opened his mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but that's sort of the, the irony of the whole thing is that, you know, this, the, the CIA... Uh, is pretty much responsible for letting acid, letting LSD out into the general public in the in the mid, early to mid sixties. Absolutely, many of the 
you know, original leaders of the, I guess, acid trip movement mm-hmm. or LSD movement from the, and this is from the early 60s, um, yeah. like Leary and Ginsburg, they both described, or does Leary describe being part of some of these tests? I know um, Leary Ginsburg was, Well, does. yeah, Ginsburg, apparently his first time doing LSD was um, in a, he had had uh, experience with mescaline prior to this, but in 1959, he volunteered for a... Um, for some experiment, I think in Palo Alto or San Francisco, somewhere in California, some CIA-funded experiment with LSD, and it was sort of under laboratory, sterile laboratory conditions, men in white coats, EEG machines, that kind of thing, and he had apparently kind of a bad time of it. I can imagine. I can imagine, too. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, uh, Leary was... There's some speculation that Leary was, in fact, a CIA agent. I don't believe it myself, but um, Leary was definitely, and he says this in in his autobiography, Flashbacks, he was approached by the CIA on several occasions. Um, I think that they either knew that he was kind of getting involved with this stuff uh, already, or um, I think he had already been studying psilocybin in the late 50s, early 60s, and... um, he was approached by the CIA about LSD at that time. They had definitely approached other professors at Harvard, and there and there were other professors at Harvard and at Berkeley where Larry had taught before that, that were working on this stuff already. Right. This and, is, with I CIA mean, funding. Right. Exactly. And and that's another thing I guess we failed to mention earlier is that I mean these aren't just people being drug off to Navy, Army, CIA intelligence centers where they're being tested. This is, these yeah. are people in universities. Right. We're not talking about mad scientists in secret laboratories in the basement of, at Langley. You know, this is at, at Berkeley, at Caltech, at Harvard, at other places, you know, at, at very prominent universities. And very widespread. Thousands and thousands of test subjects, especially under the MKUltra program. And I mean, I guess we've specifically kind of got into the discussion about LSD as it is involved with this program. I mean, there's so much just just in that area. Let's talk about the Midnight Climax experiment. Yes, yes. They, um, the CIA set up their own brothel, I believe in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And each each room in the brothel had two-way mirrors, and they would... Basically, whatever Johns would come into the brothel, they would dose on LSD... And they wouldn't know, I mean, mm-hmm. that they had been drugged. Well, they would probably know that they had been drugged, but they wouldn't know what drug it was yeah. or what was happening to them. And no reports ever came out of people being secretly drugged at a brothel because the men didn't want to talk about it. I mean, it was it's kind of ingenious the way yeah. the CIA set that up. And they would use two-way mirrors to study the effects of LSD on these Johns and what would happen to them. and. Mm-hmm. Well, and apparently they weren't doing this just in San Francisco. But also, um, they were doing this, for instance, at the Atsugi Air Force Base in Japan. Which we'll get to later. Which we'll get to later. They would do this very same sort of thing on U.S. Marines mm-hmm. in the late 50s. Yes. Yeah. Uh, among them, Kerry Thornley. Doesn't he Well, describe? he, Kerry Thornley, uh, he, Kerry Thornley, by the way, he's a sort of countercultural figure from the 60s and 70s. We may have uh, mentioned him before in relation to Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes, because he was friends with Oswald and he was, knew him in the Marines. Yeah, he knew Oswald in the Marines and, in fact, wrote a book about Oswald before 1963 called The Idle Warriors. Kerry Thornley believes that he was, the, that he was uh, part of some of these CIA Things. Ken Kesey, the author of One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, I believe, was also p- a part of one of these kinds of experiments. And his first time doing acid was under um, CIA experiments. So it's strange how all of these heads of the later counterculture were uh, initially given LSD by the CIA or yeah. people working for the CIA because the CIA wanted to have an easier way to control people's minds and thoughts. And it's just bizarre. Well, it's also bizarre, Raymond, because it makes you wonder. I mean, when, when you know, in the late 60s, um, when it, it seemed, at least the movies you know, tell us that everyone was doing acid at the time. I mean, almost everyone of, you know, of a certain age was doing acid. I mean, did, did their mind control experiments work to some extent? Uh, well, I mean, many would argue that, or I've heard the argument made that, you know, it uh, broke the spirit of the subculture or something like that. But, I mean, I don't know. I mean, most of the people that I've 
heard talk about doing acid, I mean, some of them talk about it being a very bad experience, but others describe it as this like freeing experience mm-hmm. or kind of opens your mind. Right. And I don't know, the jury's still out for me on that one, but, you know, it's really hard to tell. I mean, did did they, I mean, it could be that they, you know, in some way put down countercultural movements through the use of drugs. And it also could be that those drugs that they might have thought to use actually had the opposite effect. Right. You know, that. Right. Or it's possible that in some ways acid LSD is sort of the Frankenstein monster of the of the Cold War government um, in that it it was originally intended, you know, the study of it was originally intended for mind control. And when it was finally released on the general pub- public, it had quite the opposite effect of making people sort of shed shed their concepts of control and obedience and that kind of stuff. In fact, it had quite the opposite effect, and st- and and so, so and st- so as a sort of Frankenstein monster of that era of the Cold War era, um, it was created for evil, but ended up somehow being for good. And later on in the late '60s, uh, there was a lot of domestic counterintelligence infiltration of of uh, a lot of these political movements that were going on under Nixon like the House American House Committee on American Activities and that kind of stuff and the FB COINTELPRO the FBI investigation of of a lot of political uh leftist political movements going on maybe that was designed in some way to stop this monster that they had unleashed perhaps and perhaps it's just sort of a side product of everything else that was happening yeah these giant global events you know the epic struggle between communism and us yeah. <laughs> and at, not communism. And at, at any rate, MK Ultra was was in fact you know a product of the Cold War. It was designed to to help defeat communism at the expense of a lot of people's lives and it, yeah, people people died. I mean, I mean, apart from you know the horrible psychological effects that giving un, thousands of unknowing people uh, large doses of LSD would have i mean there were people that actually died as well lsd by the way is uh, as far as i know the most powerful psychoactive known to man a, a dose is like 250 micrograms it's tiny it's it's it's, it's very very tiny and so it, for that that for that quantity it's the most psycho, psychoactive substance that we know about let's talk about some of the other stories about how about yeah, people being given this kind of uh, against their will. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Sidney Gottlieb's experiments within the CIA about LSD. Uh, these are the best stories because so, this this guy is just a nut. Like the experiments that he would do, there's stuff that he would do within the CIA. Then there's some of these really crazy experiments that he would do on on test subjects and volunteers and people who didn't quite volunteer and that kind of stuff. But within the CIA. Uh, Sidney Gottlieb, who was the director of the MKUltra program at the time, he decided that it would it would behoove the program if agents sort of knew what the effects of LSD were. And so he started doing stuff like dosing agents at parties, unsuspecting to them, or put some in their coffee on a regular workday in the morning, put some acid in their coffee, and... Then, Not tell them until after they had drank it. Yeah, they drink the coffee. Then they're like, "Oh, by the way, you you just uh, you just had a bunch of LSD in your coffee. You can take the day off. Um, <laughs> go have fun. Yeah, go, go have fun." And there is even like a memorandum set out, sent out saying that they should not put LSD in the punch bowl at the office Christmas party. That would be very wrong. I mean, this is the CIA office Christmas party. Yeah, you know? can you imagine what that party's like? By the way. Like the CIA uh, this office is Christmas party. Mid fifties, everybody's uh very straight laced, got the got the um the real short hair, you know. <laughs> yeah, crew cut flat tops. And, and the um uh tortoise shell glasses <laughs> right, or right. whatever, and they're all dosed up on L S D. Yeah. Um Sidney Gottlieb himself would take massive doses and lock himself in his office for hours taking notes, apparently. Copious notes, Copious if, if I recall what the yeah. quote was from the website we read. But. And this is just within the agency. There, I mean, there would be – it almost sort of became like a, a prank. You know, try to one-up your agent buddy by slipping LSD into the <laughs> office water 
water tank or whatever, you know, say like, okay, you know, oh, you got me last week. I'm going to get you back. Ha ha ha. You know, and and the motivation was just so just in case our boys are captured, you know, in case, in case our agents are captured and dosed by the commies with this stuff, they need to know how to deal with it. Right. Or in, in case they end up, you know, torturing and interrogating some random spy, they know exactly how to make best use of the dose that they've given to their enemy or right. whatever. Right. This is just bizarre. And, you know, I can't help but think that some of this had to be recreational. When it got right down to it. Of course it did. If they were encouraged to take it, then they're going to take it, <laughs> you know? And it seems like there, you know, there's some, uh, there had to be times when people took it on purpose, but of course there were also times when, you know, within the agency that people were giving it, were given it unknowingly, even having never heard of it before. Like, for instance, there is a case of a guy named Frank Olson who, um, he the official story goes that he committed suicide by leaping from a hotel window in uh, 1953 or 54 uh, which is shortly after the program was started well it turns out that frank olson was surreptitiously given some lsd at one of these uh cia events and he kind of went crazy a little bit and uh i guess Word got out that he wasn't really happy with that experience and that maybe he was going to uh, let the cat out of the bag, as it were. And so a little bit after that, he was found um, smashed on the concrete under a hotel window. Well, his family over the over, you know, decades always thought that, that his death was a little suspicious. So his son had his body exhumed in 1994, and it turns out that Frank Olson was um, before he either fell out of the window, before he went out the window, um, he had... Was unconscious. He was unconscious by some blunt head trauma and possi- and probably thrown out of the window. So not so it wasn't just fun and games. I mean, this was serious business, Raymond. Like, the, the, this guy was probably killed, murdered by the CIA because of his knowledge of these LSD experiments. Right. Wasn't, wasn't his family... Um... Didn't the government like settle with his family or something like that? There, there have been settlements. I know that yeah. in MK Ultra cases where people have been given a hundred thousand yeah. dollars, numbers of subjects, you know, um, former army officers, and I mean, just enlisted men. Yeah, and most of those people were just suing because they went crazy or you know had had flashbacks for the rest of their life or whatever. Right. Here's someone who was murdered, probably because of his knowledge of the project. But you know, what I think is worse than murder is, I mean, if you read the descriptions of some of these tests, I mean, it's not just with LSD. I mean, they're using uh, microwave radiation, electroshock therapy, sensory deprivation on people. They would do stuff like, there was that one, I think uh, Sidney Gottlieb oversaw experiments where they would put people in comas for like three months straight and play and play back like have uh, little recordings, repetitive recordings of their own voice for three months in a coma and just to see what happens. It's just, I don't know, it's pretty insane. It's totally insane. Like they would do stuff like dose someone with LSD, put them in a sensory deprivation tank, and then uh, play recordings of their own voice saying something that's very self-degrading. They do these like uh, psychiatric interviews and then take the the clip from the interview that's the most self-degrading thing, like I'm the worst person alive and of their own voice and then play that for them while they're dosed on LSD force and locked in a sensory deprivation tank for a day or two. Right. And these are I mean these are Americans. These are this, Americans. This isn't the enemy. Yeah, these are these, and sometimes these are like our boys in uniform. Right. These right. are our boys. These are our our soldiers. Right. And um, but I mean, not just our people, but I mean, there have been links to what Operation Phoenix, I believe it's called. Yeah. In fact, oper- uh, the Phoenix Project, I think, is uh was during the Vietnam War, where they would um, apparently um, the Phoenix Project was a, a project, an interrogation project for North Vietnamese prison prisoners of war. And, you know, no, they weren't. I don't think they were prisoners of war. I think they were um, people who that who the government was relatively sure were working as non-combatants for the Viet Cong. Uh, so people okay. supporting 
insurgent activities in South Korea. They would capture these people and put them under the most horrible interrogations. And, you know, um, I've, I've read, you know, some stuff about Project Phoenix where the people who were even involved with the project talk about no one ever survived these interrogation processes. Yeah, it ended up being just basically a, a murder operation right. where they would um, they would you know slash up people and burn their bodies or throw them out of helicopters or stuff stuff like just that. Just get rid of them after it was over. So they so there was no evidence of some of the techniques that were being used before that point. Yeah, Sydney. So, yeah, Sydney. I mean, it makes sense that I mean, if a person is willing to go far enough to torture someone horribly to find out what the best way to control someone is. It it makes a lot of sense that sooner or later somebody like Gottlieb might have asked, hey, I need some subjects who um, who are disposable. Well, in fact, he did have his hand in that project a little bit. He um, They apparently were testing um, my, uh, brain implants, and they would manipulate these uh, and these people who they wanted to interrogate, they would manipulate them in such a way that they would try to make them fight each other with knives. Apparently, the project wasn't much of a success, but they would still, I guess, you know, uh, torture and murder the people afterwards anyway and burn their bodies. Right, but don't but don't let that fool you. I mean, the use of um, microwave signals, especially if you implant a receiver in someone's head, can have all sorts of horrible effects. You can cause um, sleep disturbances that are completely silent, for example. Mm. So if you wanted to say, you know, deprive someone of sleep for weeks and weeks and weeks on end to make them more malleable to whatever you want to do. You know, you just use some dev- you just park a van out there or whatever. And- in fact, I've, I read somewhere that you can fit one of these things in the size of a shoebox or just put it under their bed at night. <laughs> man. The, and all- this is like the 60s. Yeah. Like, there's no telling. Oh, I man. mean, okay, this all blew up in the 1970s. There were all sorts of court cases. Um, where, I mean, there were thousands of test subjects. I mean, it, it makes sense this sooner or later it would have come out. Yeah. And... Some of these test subjects sued and won or came close to winning their cases. The government would fight them each time, but mm-hmm. in the end, many of them would, would get settlements and things mm-hmm. like that, which means that there must have been some truth to what they were saying. Certainly. And certainly. Like, we know that there's so. I mean, we know that these experiments happened. We know that, that uh, unwitting subjects were given massive doses of LSD, sometimes for up to, like, 75 days straight. I mean, and that's that's torture. That's torture. I mean, let's let's face it. I yeah, mean, they would yeah. do this with mental patients sometimes. And you know, say what you want about the conditions in the Cold War and how we were on the brink of just destroying ourselves. Anyway, that I don't think that matters. I think if it reminds me of, um, I, I was watching these documentaries about the Civil War this week, and there's this quote from this Union soldier on Sherman's March talking about how no matter how good our cause is, we don't deserve to win because of what we're doing to these people. And this is, you know, this is burning people's homes and farms and stuff. Mm-hmm. But same thing here. I mean, any moral position that the United States has in the Cold War is completely undermined by the, t- the tactics they're using to fight it and to carry it out. I mean, even if the enemy is using stuff that's just as bad, you don't have the moral high ground anymore Bingo. at that point. Bingo. And this, of course, is very applicable to what's going on today. We don't have to get into that. But, like, you know, the United States is not supposed to torture and murder innocent people. Right. But, I mean, obviously that's, uh, you know... Well, that's bullcrap, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, I mean, I, well, it's not bullcrap that we shouldn't. I, I, it, it's not bullcrap that it's ethically and morally reprehensible. That's true. That's very true. And I mean, even, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just read this directly off of the uh, Wikipedia article on MK Ultra. In 1987, the Supreme Court affirmed the defense of the guy, one of the soldiers who sued the armed forces. The majority argued that a test for liability that depends on the extent to which particular suits would call into question military discipline and decision-making would itself require judicial inquiry into, and hence intrusion upon military matters. So this, the court, you know, ruled that no, these people, when they took their oath to the military, put themselves up for any sort of danger in the line of duty. In dissent, Justice William Brennan argued that the need to preserve military discipline should not protect the government from liability and punishment from serious violations of constitutional rights. He says, and this is a good point, 
The medical trials at Nuremberg in 1947 deeply impressed upon the world that experimentation with unknowing human subjects is morally and legally unacceptable. The United States Military Tribunal established that the Nuremberg Code as a standard against which to judge German scientists who experimented with human subjects. In defiance of this principle, military intelligence officials began surreptitiously testing chemical and biological materials, including LSD. And, I mean, that puts it in perspective to me. I mean, that's the Supreme Court justice. What, what year was that case? That's 1987, and Sandra Day O'Connor wrote a separate dissent stating, this is off the same Wikipedia article, no, judici- no judicially crafted rule should insulate from liability the involuntary and unknowing human experimentation alleged to have occurred in this case. Indeed, as Justice Brennan observes, the United States played an instrumental role in the criminal prosecution of Nazi officials who experimented with human subjects during the Second World War. And the standards that the Nuremberg military tribunals developed to judge the behavior of the defendant stated that the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely necessary to satisfy moral, ethical, and legal concepts. If this principle is violated, the very least that society can do is see that the victims are compensated as best they can be by the perpetrators. But, so what if they're compensated? I mean, what happened to uh, all those Nazi doctors who would do horrible experiments on I mean, whatever the army would give them. And is that so much worse than giving people like 10 to 20 times the normal uh, electroshock treatment? Or using microwave radiation on them. Or, I mean, yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think U.S. intelligence, I mean, whether they're still doing this or not, but at least going back to the 50s and 60s, U.S. intelligence was no better than the Nazis for what they were doing. And and why? To justify... To justify, uh, can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against the fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? To fight a Cold War that isn't... I mean, that's right, not With even robots. With, yeah, with human robots. I mean, the Cold War, much like the way I conceive, at least, of the War on Terror, is something that's, like, ill-conceived at best. There's no... Like, what are you fighting when you fight communists or when you fight terrorists? It's, it's, it's a concept. You're not fighting people. You know, you're fighting ideology. And so you're willing... As you know, as this as Sidney Gottlieb or Alan Dulles or anyone who's involved in this kind of program is willing to undermine that everything this country should be should stand for, all of our ideals, everything that that our forefathers fought the British for for independence, everything that we hold dear as a country, is undermined by doing these kinds of things. I agree. I mean, and the end does not justify the means. Clearly not. And it doesn't matter if you're fighting, you know, uh, uh, a guy with a hammer and a sickle on his flag or someone who worships Muhammad or whatever. Like, it doesn't matter who you think the enemy is. Like, it, nothing justifies these kinds of activities in my eyes. Absolutely. And, but for them, the end does justify the means. And... You read the official stuff that's come out, especially the documents that haven't been blacked out by the uh, famous black highlighters. The black highlighters that the, the CIA C- was using for you know forty or fifty years there. I don't, I don't know. You were talking about this. Yeah. Why didn't they realize they were using black highlighters on all their documents? I mean, really. Yeah, that's. Re- but we're referencing in the, uh, this article in the Onion. <laughs> Go read it if you can. I think it was a, a few weeks ago. The Onion article. CIA realizes that they've been using black highlighters for decades. <laughs> <laughs> but hilarious. even the stuff that does I mean so the stuff that comes through about MK Ultra and other programs paints this picture of it not working very well and it having right. very limited success as to what you could get someone to do and all this. I think that's a red herring. I think it's a total red herring. There's um the part I read in the 50 greatest conspiracies book that's the uh, Jonathan Vankin and John Whalen. Um they have a little article about MK Ultra in there and they say and I think I agree with this, that um, CIA tries to paint themselves as a sort of keystone cop, kind of ineffective and inefficient, you know, bumbling and just, you know, oh, our, we just do silly, wacky stuff like try to dose Castro with LSD on his cigar, or make his hair fall out and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, oh, we're wacky. We're the CIA. We can't really do anything. But really, that's a cover for what they really are doing. I uh, agree with you 100 percent on yeah. that. And. That's kind of frightening because, okay, think about it. 
the, this all this stuff happened really came to light in this like mid seventies, mm-hmm. like early to mid seventies, and all these presidential decrees came down saying no, this will be done no more. There'll be no more of this. Uh, officially, we admit that we've done this and we disavow all knowledge of it. Uh, you know, I think part of that. I mean, maybe not necessarily on the president's part, but I think part of that's a cover up. I think part of that is. We want to get we we want to show this to the public and say it's over. It's something that's right. in our past right. that we don't use anymore. We did this, but we're not doing this anymore. Right. I don't think so. I think that um, I mean, just going back to what we were talking about earlier about you know stage hypnotists. I mean, if a stage hypnotist can have that much that much effect on someone he hasn't even met before, you know, what can a CIA trained hypnotist with all sorts of psychoactive drugs? Yeah, and all this time on his hands with yeah. this victim. <laughs> what and, can they do to somebody? I mean, what can they get out of you? And also, look at it this way. Let's say that, uh, you know, through this program in the mid mid to late 60s or early earlier than that even, we've, uh, we've ha- we have this sort of gr- pool of sleeper agents that we've hypnotized into being, you know, whenever we need to use them, we can trigger them however we want, you know, make either by either by microwave audio transmission straight to their brain <laughs> or catcher in the rye or give them a copy of catcher in the rye which is their trigger <laughs> well we can talk about that in a second but um the point is you know when you have this whole pool of trained sleeper assassins and all of a sudden congress says oh well, you can't do this anymore like what are you going to do with this pool of <laughs> retire assassins. them yeah <laughs> all right you guys get your medal for being a sleeper assassin retired. what i don't even know i was a sleeper assassin right. thanks though you know i don't think so i think you know i mean no there's you, no there's no solid evidence of this that i can point to right here on this show today but i think that stuff still goes on i have no doubt that within cia which is a very secret organization that there are secrets even within the that agency and secret groups within that agency functioning secret programs inner circle styly certainly i have no doubts about that and especially in the time period we're talking about you know in the 70s under nixon under george bush george bush but you know he was director of the cia under gerald ford after yes. nixon um and he himself uh was a cia agent in the early 60s in texas I wonder if he ever uh you know Dosed. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if everyone was doing it at the time. I don't think he could. No, no, he's way too square. <laughs> George Bush. <laughs> You'd kind of see it. What was it that Paul McCartney said? That, you know, you're never the same after you do Like, no, things are never quite the same after yeah. the first time you do that sort of thing. So, Well, what do we, we don't know what George Bush was like before he was a CIA agent. <laughs> That's true. Maybe he was even more Maybe square. he was a decent. <laughs> yeah, he was decent. <laughs> he was decent and caring. <laughs> oh, but we're mean. We're mean. We don't know Bush the senior, Bush the older, or whatever you want to call him. And, yeah, and I don't want to make a... any broad generalizations about the former head of the CIA or anything. Uh, right, former head of the CIA who was connected, at least indirectly, to some of the people in, that we know were somehow involved with the Kennedy assassination, including like Oswald's Russian friend George DeMornshield. Yeah, yeah, that was anyway. we, we that was an interesting. <laughs> it's like, a very tangled avenue web. tangent that it's, we ended up on today. It's a tangled web, people. It's right. a very tangled web. But we might as well before we end. Well, tonight, right? How did we even get on the subject of Oswald? Let's talk about Manchurian candidates through recent history. Right. Because if this whole program was designed to make sleeper agents. Who's to say they haven't already? Right. Who's to say that doesn't already have a mark on history? Where would they test such sleeper agents? Would they test them on domestic enemies, foreign enemies, or what? Uh, anybody you want, I guess. I guess so. I mean, it, I mean, I, I imagine initial tests would be very much like they were in Manchurian Candidate, you know, kill your buddy. But, like, let's say that you wanted to take out someone who was very uh, a very public figure. Who, you know, you can't necessarily just uh, pay your best agent to go up and kill him. You need a sleeper. You need someone who doesn't know that they're an agent. You need someone who's hypnotized to kill at uh, some trigger. Right. And they may even be acting under completely different auspices for the whole week. I mean, you might you might even get someone who has the opposite uh, viewpoint. Right. That it would never seem 
like likely for them to do. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. using like we're going to talk about Oswald here in a minute, who yeah. in his youth was noted for his communism or for his interest in communism. Right. And right. one starts to wonder, especially since and we'll just go on and get into the Oswald thing. You know, he was at what was the Air Force Base in Japan? At Sugi Air Force Base. And that's where he did all of his secret radar stuff that we talked about in the assassination extravaganza. But it's also one of the centers where MKUltra was tested on yeah. soldiers. Yeah, that's one so. of the places where they did, did some of the Midnight Climax right. experiments, for instance. And they had already gotten all of this information, especially from Operation Artichoke and the other previous operations, about who was most susceptible to this sort of mind control. And if you look at Oswald's early history, a social outcast, a loner... He seems very, it seems, I mean, he's in the right place at the right time, and he's the right person. And he knows the right people. Exactly. He's just an interesting cat, and it just seems, could have been the subject of some of these tests. And right. It's not that far out there to believe that, especially with all these other Marines. Probably even, I mean, you could probably, I bet you could probably find an account of other Marines in his unit mm-hmm. that had these experiments done on them. And if, well. I mean, that's yeah. that's a close connection right there. So what happens? You you train your sleeper Oswald and mm-hmm. he... You sleep either your sleeper Oswald or your sleeper Sirhan Sirhan or your sleeper Mark David Chapman or maybe your sleeper John Hinckley or your sleeper James Earl Ray, whoever it is. I mean, people have... I mean, that's the thing about this is while this is all very possible, like there is... Um, I mean, this has been applied to every major assassin in the past 40 years and I, I'm sorry, they can't all be they, yeah, I don't think they're mind controlled sleeper agents. Well, I mean they I don't think that they are, but like it's, it's possible. It's within the realm of possibility. Can, all all right. the people I just listed have there's some evidence circumstantial at best sometimes that that they were either under hypnosis, like for instance Sirhan Sirhan who's who allegedly killed uh Robert Kennedy. Um there are apparently very clear signs that he was under his hypnotic suggestion. No one really knows by whom. Um, Same thing with Mark David Chapman. Mark David Chapman. The guy who shot John Lennon. Yeah, James Earl Ray, who shot, uh, who allegedly shot Martin Luther King. I love how we add the allegedly <laughs> onto people who were convicted right. These of are the con- crime. Right. These are convicted murderers, but I'm still going to say allegedly, because Oswald, although never convicted, is generally known as the murderer of Kennedy. But to me, that's just alleged. Right. You know, but James Earl Ray was apparently very interested in hypnosis. Um, John Hinckley, who uh, shot Reagan in 1981, was also apparently showed some signs of hypnosis. And incidentally, Mark David Chapman and John Hinckley were both carrying or at least obsessed with uh, Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye, which though the, the actual material in it might not be so inflammatory. It, you can see how it might be applied as a hypnotic trigger mm-hmm. because it's the main character in it, I believe, is like very much a social outcast. Yeah. And so it makes sense that, you know, if you're going to search for a Manchurian candidate or whatever, that you would pick someone. I mean, the person you're going to pick is obviously probably going to be a social outcast anyway. Right. And so a book like that would obviously appeal to that kind of a personality. And, I mean, if you know they're going to like it. I mean, you don't want to give somebody a, a, a hypnotic trigger that they're never going to look at, you know. Right. So right. you can see how there would be an appeal there to that kind of a personality, but I Os- don't know. Oswald owned a copy of Catcher in the Rye. Not that that necessarily means anything, but just in- as an incidental statement, Oswald owned a copy of Catcher in the Rye. But, I mean, so do I. So right. I mean, and who knows? I mean, and you know, there's that whole story about Oswald taking a shot at... Um, some general who was in the John Birch Society just a couple of months before he shot Kennedy or supposedly shot Kennedy. And I, I wonder if that wasn't like a trial run, you know, or something oh, like that. Oh, it could have been. Like, well, uh, was was Oswald, um, was he in, in the Marines at the time? or? Oh, no, no. This was this was in, like, September of 63, oh, I think. Wow. It was really late. Some other stuff about Oswald that I find interesting, and I I had read this earlier, Raymond. You said you hadn't read this anywhere else, no. neither have I, but um, in, I believe it was in 63, uh, Oswald, um, in October 1963, a month before Kennedy was assassinated, Oswald walked into the office of New Orleans Assistant District Attorney Edward Gillen 
asking about the legality of LSD. This is before LSD was made illegal. LSD wasn't made illegal until 1965 in this country. But uh, in 1963, a month before Kennedy was assassinated, Oswald walked into the assistant DA's office in New Orleans asking about the legality of importing LSD, or at least of selling LSD in this country, because he claimed to have a connection. Well, at the time, the only connection for LSD was either you get it from the source in Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland, which a pretty much only scientists could get it from Sandoz, or you get it from the CIA, which Oswald was known to have connections to people in the CIA. So here's Oswald, who may have been who may have been a subject in some of these MK Ultra experiments in the late 50s as a Marine in Japan, um, asking about selling LSD in New Orleans. That, I think that's the most fantastic Oswald story I've ever heard. Yeah, but I, I'd still, never heard I mean, either. with with all the testing with that drug going on at the Air Force base that he had, or the Marine base that he had just been stationed at mm-hmm. months before, you wonder. I mean, you really wonder. Yeah, so. yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting that that I think that you can you know you can have these sorts of triggers. There's all there's just all this, all these connections between these mind control experiments and like all the largest, most publicized assassinations in the last 40 years of U.S. history. And almost all of the alleged assassins are connected somehow with with hypnosis or even directly connected, as Oswald possibly is, with LSD or with um, the MK, MKUltra experiments um, that the CIA is running in the 50s and 60s. It's, as I use this word before, and I'll use it again. It's unnerving. It's totally unnerving that that this might be the case. What's most unnerving to me is this may still be going on. Right. Uh, who's to say that it stopped? You know, it was secret then. Like, who's to say that there aren't such secrets now? And the techno- our technology. I mean, and and you know, when we when we talk about like possibility of using brain implants and microwave transmissions um, for mind control, we're talking about the fifties and sixties here. Right. It's like uh, looking at a. Um what is it, the SR-71, the fastest plane in the world? Right. The fastest plane in the world was built in the 1960s. <laughs> the, you know what I'm saying? Like, what we look at is the pinnacle aircraft that we have knowledge of, or that the public can see, mm-hmm. 1960s. Yeah. And same thing with this. So, you know, add 40 years, 50 years of research onto that and factor in the exponential rate of technological growth that that much money can bring Mm -hmm. with a lot of scientists on a job. Yeah. I shudder to think at where we might be. I mean, I mean, if, I mean, who's to say, I mean, it's like people, people make the claim, Oh, well, you know, that the military has aircraft that are so far out there that people think they're UFOs because they're so advanced. Well, that doesn't seem too far-fetched. And the idea that there is an extremely advanced form of mind control yeah. available to government intelligence sources, I don't think that's too far-fetched either. Who's to say, dear listener, that you don't have a brain implant right now? Oh, man. Who's I don't, I don't say, want to go down this road. <laughs> who's to say that you are not just awaiting your trigger to right. assassinate? Stay away somebody. from the Salinger. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great book. Go read it right now. Right. right, right. <laughs> so anyway, you know, th- we've we've really gone on for longer than I'd expected on this one. Well, this is it's been almost an hour, Raymond. Oh, it's been over an hour. Has it been over an hour? It has. Let's wrap this up. Absolutely. Uh, so I need to go. I need to go take a nap, man. This has just been too much for today. I know it's very draining. So, um, any announcements before we go? Out there, radio at gmail dot com. Please send us an email. Think of a cool new name for this show, and we will reward you and give you much praise on the air. Or, if you can't think of a good name for the show, we just want your feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you have any show suggestions. We want to be able to get in touch with our listeners. We we know there are a number of you that are out there listening, we hope, each week. And if that's the case, tell us us what what makes you come back and listen to the next episode and not... Cancel your subscription to the podcast or whatever. <laughs> right, right, right. And, Please do. I mean, and if you know you're listening to this and you need a link to our podcast page, slash podcasts you can subscribe there. We're on a bunch of different directories all over the internet. And um, let's see, as far as the live broadcast goes, we're not we're not broadcasting live this week. We're in a very empty 
WOG Studios right now. But in coming weeks, we're going to be moving to a new time. So if you sometimes listen to the show live or via the webcast, be on the lookout for an announcement about our new time. Yeah. We're going to actually have our own hour or maybe even more in wow. the spring, which is going to be nice. Awesome. So, I think it'll be a night thing, too. Yeah, it's going to be an evening thing, which, which will, I think, Suits the show a lot better than the afternoon drive yeah. home. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we know? won't be sandwiched for in between in between the film, film thing, thing and, and thumbs, thumbs down. down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, was there anything else, Joe? No, just um, thanks for listening. Right. Our main page is uh, myspace dot com slash out there radio. Yeah. We'll be posting some new information in the upcoming weeks and maybe a new. Uh, a new promo as well. So yeah. keep listening. My name is Raymond Wiley. I'm Joe McFall. Thanks again. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com.